The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi everybody, I'm Nigel Barker in New York City. This is The Shaken and Stirred Show, and I'm with my co-host Tom Astor, all the way in Oxford. Tom, how are you, my friend? All nice, thanks. Yeah, all trucking on nicely, you know. Getting ready for um getting ready for summer and uh you know. And the lockdown and all's looking good. Everything's kind of coming out, coming out and starting again, it seems. How are you? I, I am not coming out. I've decided to just put my apron on and, and stay in, actually. Right. Uh, I see you have an apron as well. We've got a rather interesting guest today, don't we? We do, Nigel. And as, as for coming out, I'm surprised to see you today not wearing one of your latest line of lingerie that you're currently promoting. Well, you know what? I'll do whatever it takes to, to you know, to, to make a buck. And on that note, what, what? are you drinking, John? What are you drinking, my friend? I'm drinking something. Rather. I'm drinking an old-fashioned. And, you know, the reason I'm drinking the alphabet is nothing to do with the colour of it matching my hair or anything like that. It's to do with the fact that I read a brilliant, brilliant uh, description of how an old-fashioned should be. And I thought, eh, it sort of summed it up, summed me up, really. It should be strong, not too strong. Sweet, but not too sweet. Most importantly, it's dead simple and absolutely delicious. <laughs> wow. Anyway, ran that past Mel, she agreed. So. Wow, I was going to say, it's certainly cheesy. But um, I, I like the fact that you thought, you know, first of all, your first thing you said was, I'm not drinking it because it looks like me. Because no. that's how one normally orders a cocktail. Please can I have something that actually resembles myself? Well, um, little, it's got a little twist of orange in it as well, you see. And it's a, you know, well, talking about things that you perhaps shouldn't be drinking, I am drinking something called a blue moon. And in general, I don't like to drink anything that's colour blue. I mean, there's something off with blue. But we had a bartender, did we not, from the UK, who happens to be dating a certain goddaughter of mine. Um, and he made something called an aviation aviator or an aviation i can't remember what it was but it was a it was made with creme de voilette and i bought some creme de voilette and i'm like how do i what do i make can i make an aviator um and ultimately i didn't have all the ingredients and i looked up what else because you needed some maraschino cherry liqueur to make that aviator but what i did have was the creme de, de voilette which is actually I've got to say, it could almost be called creme de toilette because it, when you smell it, it smells like a really dodgy potpourri from the bathroom in a cheap pub, is all I can tell you. And I'm like, okay, mate, this better be good. And I squeezed in about an ounce of lemon juice fresh, and I've got two ounces of dry gin, uh, London gin, shaken over ice, and I got a maraschino cherry in there, dropped in there. And by all accounts, that makes it a blue moon. So, Cheers. Um, I'm about to taste it for my first time, served in a coupe. Okay. Mm. Wow. You know what? It's not like licking a lavatory bar. It's actually quite delicious. And it has the taste of that sweet that you would, that, 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 that candy that you would get in those old stores where you would buy about by the pound or whatever. Those very kind of unusual blue candies. I forget what they're called, but they, they, I guess they had a, a violet taste to it. But anyway, artificial tasting, but delicious. Chin, chin. Chin, chin, my friend. Let's do that little boom. Right at you, mate. And now straight into Booze News, I think. Booze News. 
We have booze news! Booze news, people. The world's oldest known bottle of whiskey is up for auction. That's right, the oldest known bottle, but of bourbon. People, bourbon, 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 whatever you want to call it. Whiskey, some people call it. I don't know, when I say whiskey, I think of a Scots whiskey, but it's not. This is bourbon. Um, it's going up for auction. Uh, according to Skinner's auctioneers, it's going to be auctioned and probably reach around twenty to $40,000. The bottle is an old Ingledew whiskey marked with a label from Evans and Ragland in LaGrange, Georgia. And uh, there's a, there was a typed note with the bottle that says that it was made probably prior to 1865. They actually put a needle into the bottle and extracted a tiny piece and carbon dated it. And there's an 81% chance that, in fact, the bottle dates back to 1763, uh, which will make it the oldest bottle of bourbon in existence. And quite frankly, a 250-year-old bottle of whiskey, I'm not sure anyone's going to be drinking that when they buy it. But if they do, all I can say is cheers to them. I can't imagine there's anything quite like a 250-year-old vintage, Tom. I don't think the whiskey changes much, does it? You'll pay hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars, for a 20-year-old, 18-year-old. I cannot imagine a 250-year-old. Cheers. Oh, yes. My booze news. Now, onto aprons and kitchen gear. So our guest today, you could describe as a dreamer, a hustler, a fighter, a doer, a maker, a shaker, a stirrer. Tom, she's just like one of us, old boy. She's grown her apron and kitchen gear company into a multi-million dollar empire, not like us, that outfits restaurants worldwide, is sold in stores across the country and can be seen on the Food Network and Bravo, like us, and is beloved by home cooks everywhere. I even have one of their aprons on right now. That's right, this in my kitchen. Um, please welcome the CEO of Headley and Bennett, Ellen Marie Bennett. Ellen, how are you, man? I'm so good. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Thank you so much. What are you drinking? Cheers to you, by the way. I know, right? Well, I was actually going to find out what you guys were going to make, and I would uh, riff off of that. Oh, that's interesting. Look at that. You know what? It's funny. I had the call yesterday from one of our producers, Stephanie, yeah, who said yeah. to us, there is a request to know what you're drinking. And I literally wrote back to her saying, you know, after several years of doing this, Tom and I have never once given away what we're drinking before the show to any of our guests. Yeah. And I said, funnily enough, we have never even told each other what we're making. Oh my God. Not, so this that's why it wasn't to try and be difficult or, or weird or awkward. We simply had never done it. And I suddenly thought to myself, we probably shouldn't start now um, because it's we're not very good actors over here. Uh, you know, we, we we ask each other what we're drinking on every episode and then react to the, the fact that Tom half the time is drinking something that looks nothing like himself. It's nothing more complicated than the fact that we have absolutely no idea what we're drinking until what well, I don't until about 20 minutes before. Um, well, I have like grapefruits here, so I figured I could do something with some citrus. Well, that's what I'm doing. I did something called a blue moon, right? So a blue moon is essentially creme de voilette, which is like a sort of potpourri kind of weird, don't want to use too much of it, just touch it like a vermouth yeah. type of scenario. Gin, London dry gin, and an ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice 
shaken over ice and then with a maraschino cherry popped in. It's a kind of like a, like an aviator, except without the maraschino cherry liqueur. Um, and Tom's drinking an old fashioned. Tom, my kind of guy, this sounds so good. I describe you and you're her type of guy. How does that happen? I want to be her type of guy. I, I, I always, I'm like secretly, I'm like an 85 year old internally. So that's just that's Tom's kind of girl, by the way. 85 year old in the, the old fashioned old fashioned kind of a gal. Yep, I really am. It's very true. I'm old school. So what are you making? What are you gonna make yourself here? You said you got um, grapefruit. I am uh, yeah, so I have a grapefruit here. I'm it is two o'clock in the afternoon here. So I think I'm gonna go for something like light and spritzy. I have some Pellegrino water. I have um, some simple syrup I made the other day with a little bit of lemon verbena. Pour a little bit of that in there. Some ice cubes. Keep it keep it classy. It is 2 p.m. here on a Tuesday or whatever day. Wait a second. I didn't hear the alcoholic element to that drink. I heard everything other than. There's no alcoholic element in there. Not, not today, Nigel. Not today. Ellen, come on. I thought you were Mexican. Where's the tequila? Give us something. Come on, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> I actually prefer mezcal over tequila. But if I was going to use a tequila, I have to show you the one that I would use. I'm going to carry you over. It's my favorite in the whole universe. And it's called Casa Dragones. Have you oh, ever had Casa it? Dragones. We love Casa Dragones. Fantastic. So good. Very good. A little on the pricey side, people. So if you're, gonna, if you're going to be a little avant-garde, if you're going to be a little bourgeois like our friend Ellen over here, you're going to go for the Casa de Granis. But hey, you know. Wait, this is mezcal that I got from Oaxaca, where I went to the place where they're actually making it like in the ground and the whole bit, very artisanal. Brought a bottle of this back. This one's worm. my favorite. It's so good. Yeah, it's worm. There, see the little wormy guy there? The little wormies in the bottom, Tom. Yeah. That's what you always like, isn't it? The little extra worm, little protein there for you. The little you. extra worm, exactly. Keep it keep it tasty. So uh, I, I'm kind of that. disappointed that you're not adding it in there. But anyway, listen, I'll forgive you because I understand it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And so what I really want to know is why you were asking us what we would be drinking prior to the show, only to not make a drink when it actually came down to it once knowing what we were drinking. So listen, Ellen, we love, what are you going to name what you're drinking? Give, please give it a good name at the very least. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to call it uh, Toronjita. Ooh, what does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> it means, it means little, little grapefruit, little one, little grapefruit one. Everything in Spanish is like little. When things are, things that are small are sweeter, they're tastier, they're juicy. And so it's a, it's like a baby grapefruit drink. She says to two guys who are both giant, by the way. How tall are you? Six foot four and 230 pounds. Oh my nothing, God. Nothing, I have a, nothing little. <laughs> I have a pet pig who's 200 pounds. It's, not it's six all... foot four, not six foot four. It's a little more condensed. He's a little bit more of a two. In the same so that is actually really how I describe Tom, actually, is more condensed version of me. His nickname happens to be Pigsy. So 
I'm Monkey and he's Pigsy. And it comes from the show out of the UK from back in the day. If you remember that show, everyone out there who's ever seen Monkey, the show, is oh, a character called Pigsy. And we pretend to be those characters when we're offline and we're emailing and texting each other. And he does a little Pigsy face from the emojis that speaks. Oh, like I, 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 can't, I can't jump in on the end of this conversation because I, I don't understand pounds and ounces when it comes to weight. So I'm sorry about that. I can't. Oh, well, it's just, he's really fucking big. <laughs> he's really big. He's, uh, he's about like that wide. All right, but smaller okay. than my job. Yeah, like small. that, and then the like that. The circumference of my arms. That's the size of the pig. He's basically massive. He is so big. Uh, he sleeps on our couch. He's totally potty trained. Um, now I feel like I need to find out what the pounds are, what the translation is. But you're not, you're not going to. You're not, yeah. it's not a pig for eating then, sounds oh, like. We're not going to eat the pig. He's what? our pet. He's our pet. Okay. We're not going to eat the pig. Or the chickens. We have seven chickens too. It's a whole zoo. It's a farmhouse over here. See, I can't be, you know, I can't get like drunk in the middle of the day. The farms will, the farm animals will take over. It, it sounds like to me, someone was drunk when they were setting up the house. But that sounds like, I mean. You've got a pig living in the house who's actually sort of sleeping on the couch. You've got chickens running around. Life. No wonder you've got in the apron business. You need an apron so you don't ruin your clothes as you walk around the house. I mean, let's talk about this for a second. First of all, congratulations on your new book, Dream Now, Details Later. Dream first, dream first. Dream, dream first. Here, look, what am I talking about? I have it in my hand. Dream Ooh. first, details later. Yeah. There you go. I was just making sure you weren't actually drinking in the afternoon and forgotten the name of your book. Um, dream first, details later. Creating a business which has become so successful. I, I would love to know what got you, first of all, into designing aprons in the very first place. It's such an unusual niche in a way. Yes. Well, clearly I'm an unusual person, right? <laughs> I, go, I go the unbeaten path. Um, I, I was working at a restaurant here in LA, a two Michelin star restaurant, and we we're making spectacular food. You know, you don't go there and spend less than $700 a person. Like it's that kind of a meal. And um, I hated our uniforms and it made no sense to me that we were making such beautiful food. And yet we all kind of looked and felt like shit in the kitchen and that we should have appropriate gear the way that a doctor has gear when he goes into surgery, the way that an athlete has gear when they go into, you know, a football game, et cetera and nobody was doing it and it was so overlooked and it was a commodity it was just like yeah you wear an apron and that's what you do and you don't think about it in a kitchen just like you need a cutting board and a knife but knives are great and the cutting boards are great why did no one do this with aprons so that's what started it and honestly everybody nigel was like good luck with your little cute apron idea like they thought of it as like a grandma apron and I was like, no, this is this is like a suit of armor. Like you're gonna go into battle and you're gonna wear something that makes you look fucking awesome. And that was that. I had the thought, I made the decision and very much like my book, Dream First Details Later, I just decided, dreamed it. And then I got an order for 40 aprons out of the blue after I had decided this, it was very kismet. One of my chefs was like, hey, there's a girl, she's gonna make us aprons, do you wanna buy one? And I was like, I have an apron company now. What are you talking about? I'll make you those aprons. And that's literally how Headley and Bennett began. So I had no so business, nothing. I had nothing. I didn't have to have sewers. So total BS, basically. You total, sort of. Yes, exactly. Yes. Cheers to that. Cheers to that, <laughs> everyone. Entrepreneurial spirit. If you can't, if you don't have it, just make it up. Yeah, oh, yes. 
I can do that. Oh, I have one of those. I've got a company that does it right now. Wow. Can I put, so this it's, it's fascinating because what makes an apron great, I guess? I mean, you know, to all those people that poo-pooed your idea when you first thought about it, you know, I was thinking about it too, and I'm like, you know what? I have loads of aprons, and there are some that I prefer, but they're all kind of crap, actually, because yeah, totally. they, they kind of get filthy really quickly, or they well, they get wet and heavy, and they get... And I was trying to think, because I was going to ask you this question, right? Like, right. What makes your one great? So I was trying to answer it for myself, like, is that, you know... Well, let me just see. Do I, is it great? And then I want to. So just so I'm going to say what I think, right? I, I want to hear it. Tell me. So it's really light, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Right. So that was something which I was like, okay, is that a good thing? And I'm like, you know what's funny? Because one of the things that's always bothered me when I'm cooking and you're really cooking, yeah, you get I'm hot. Really cooking. Yes. You get hot, exactly. right? Yep. Because so, sometimes I just wear an apron to look good. So, but when I'm really cooking, you know, um, I'm. You get hot, and I'm like the, the light apron. This is one your apron. I picked it, pulled it, it to, to wear when I'm cooking because it actually I stay cooler, especially in the summer and what have you. I'm like, I, so that makes sense. Then yeah. the fact that it's kind of waxed as well. I noticed that I at one point was, was cooking. I put something across the front of it, and I was able to get a wet cloth and just wipe it off actually. And that was something which I'm like, huh. So the, the, are those the sorts of things, that, the innovative things that you were trying to think of to make different? And of course it has pockets and it's got something to hang something on the side and yeah, it's got all totally. these sort of gadgety things on it. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is I am like my culture. I'm very, I'm half English, half Mexican. So I have this like split brain of hyper structure and process and function. And my grandfather Headley, was an engineer and my dad is an engineer and my aunt is an engineer. They're all fucking rocket scientists. Like they all, they just analyze things all day long. And then on the flip side, you have like my Mexican family that's just creative and colorful and like scrappy and figures shit out. And it's just like resourceful. And so I think of Headley and Bennett's design as a little bit of a smash up of the two cultures. It's like form and function it's like the logic and the science of how something works but then also does it look good does it feel good does it make you look proper do you like put it on and you're like yes i can do this so when i was designing it everything was like okay talking to chefs what do you hate what do you love what do you need in an apron all right your pockets rip off great let's reinforce the pockets the straps need to adjust because everyone has different size chests well that makes sense let's do that um, the, even the fabric, to your point, a lot of people were like, oh, I love a big, thick, heavy apron. It's like you put that shit on and you do not want to be cooking in a heavy apron. It's like you're wearing a drape on top. And so I really leaned into just does it work? Does it make sense? And what are people's complaints? And because I was also a line cook myself, everything was falling apart in the kitchen. They're like paper thin. They don't adjust. People make them out of polyester. And I wanted to use the best ingredients just like at the restaurant I was working at. I'm like, okay, we're flying fish in from Japan. We should probably get Japanese denim because it lasts longer. It looks good. And truth be told, chefs are very particular, right? So if they didn't like something, you better believe I was hearing an earful about it from day one. And so I just became very good at getting that feedback and processing it into the aprons that we made. So these aprons last, you know, like, nine years like I have people that literally have aprons from year one still today and they're just bulletproof they're really like built that, to last 
I had um, I knew someone whose family were in double glazing once, and they they did incredibly well in the middle of the last century when double glazing became fashionable, and and they didn't um and they did yeah phenomenally well, and they made their product was bulletproof, and um and the the, the only complaint the guy had who, who who started the company was was that he hadn't put a fault in them, and as a result, having sold hundreds of thousands of, of these units of double glazing all over the country. Yeah. He found after a while that he had pretty much double glazed everything and no one was calling him up saying my double glaze is broken because he hadn't, he had, he said, I should have put a, um, a fault into it. Oh, cause it was too good. They didn't want another one. Yeah. So you, you know, there's no good people wearing your apron nine years later. So what you want is people, you want definitely eventually want that strap to go. Well, what's interesting about what you just said is when I first started, we were only outfitting chefs. Now, 80% of our business is actually home consumers. So it's, it's cooks at home. And we have so many styles now that are colorful. We do collaborations that people come back for more, not just because of the function, but because of the design. So it's become a fashion statement. And we literally have apron heads, like people that have 15, 20, 30 different of our aprons. And every time a collaboration happens, they're like, oh my God, the Vans times Headley and Bennett apron just hit. We're getting it. The Madewell apron just landed. We're doing it. Like we're, we're just starting to talk to Liberty of London right now. It's like, okay, cool. When that hits, people are going to want to go and get that. So just continuing to evolve it outside of just the restaurant industry is really what took Headley and Bennett to the next level. We didn't just stay outfitting chefs. No, but do you think that you were instrumental in that actually happening? Because it is a, a pretty strange phenomenon. I mean, there's, you know, it, it, well, I, I've been working in fashion my entire life, okay? And I've seen some pretty crazy things go on. And no doubt there are brands like Supreme, for example, that can put their name on almost anything. Like they, a Supreme apron, for example, everyone would be like, oh, I want a Supreme apron. I want you know, anything with Supreme on it, you want it, right? But right. you are the actual product and you're not the brand. If you obviously are a brand, but it's the concept that you've taken aprons and somehow made them chic. Is it because, do you think, that cooking itself through networks like Cooking Channel, Food Network and what have you, have become sort of, become cool and sexy. Chefs are so big, so famous, so, you know, yeah. is that a big part of it? I think it had to do with it. it. It contributed, right? Like when you see Martha Stewart and David Chang and every show that you like on the Food Network, you see that little red ampersand, you're like, that's the Nike symbol. That's the, you know, your shirt, you have a Lacoste shirt on. It's like, you recognize the alligator and you're like, that's cool. And so it became this sort of symbol in the culinary world that if you knew, you knew and you cared about quality. And it wasn't just like, oh, I'm outfitting my team with whatever I'm wearing. I'm having them wear Headley and Bennett. So they're a part of this like tribe of people that like show up and give a shit. And that is really, I think, what separated us because it gave it more than a, it wasn't just a garment. It was like a meaning. It was an attitude you kind of like showed up with. And it didn't matter if you were a line cook or the executive chef, you were somebody in that kitchen wow. now. And it gave people an identity and a way to like look different, which I think is really powerful. And then when you double that up with my own wild ideas of like, well, this isn't just an apron for the culinary world. like. We're doing, you know, we're making aprons for chefs all day. Well, what if we team up with other brands that we love all day? And that shoved us out of the culinary world. It took me from here 
to Headley and Bennett being able to partner with a brand like Vans and making a shoe together. Um, and we brought what we were excited about to the table and then they brought something different. And then we created something very unique, which is the idea of a perfect collab. So when you say a shoe. Yeah. You're doing a shoe? Yeah, we already have a shoe. It's on oh, our shoe. website. Check it out. It's so is it, rad. Is it a clog? It's not a clog. It's a high top Vans shoe. We changed the sole. We made them so they're totally like super durable, slip resistant, water resistant. And, um, and you can stand in them all day and wear them in and out of a kitchen. But the sole of the shoe is actually a rainbow. It's like stripes rainbows on the bottom. So it's like it's really rad. Right? Because like, like you're- that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You inside, inside There's a the theme. Book. There's a theme, Nigel. <laughs> I can see yeah, it. There go. Look, he found them. He found them. He's very good like that. He's technically challenged normally, but every now and then he just surprises me. <laughs> shocking, really. Um, yeah. You know, it's so funny. You likened yourself to sort of, well, you likened the idea to Nike a moment ago as far as being a brand that you would see and then that's, but also like, you know, obviously Nike outfit pro athletes and then it seeps through to everyone else who wants to wear a pair of sneakers wants to wear what their favorite pro athletes wear. And hence, if you're going to actually outfit the top chefs, then everyone else out there is going to want the same thing. That's right. At what point did you have this vision that this was what you were going to do? It's one thing to say, okay, I want to design the best, you know, apron and outfit and gear. It's another thing to have such a grand concept for what is considered to be sort of, perhaps not as necessary item as a pair of shoes, like a sneaker. I think that in so many ways, the fact that I just got it started and then I felt that feeling that entrepreneurs feel when they hit something that they love and it's just like your whole inside lights up like a lighthouse and you're like, oh my God, I want to feel that more often. So when I got my first order of aprons and I delivered them, I was so ecstatic that I had imagined something in my head brought it to life and handed it over. It was like an epiphany, it really was. And so I wanted to keep feeling that epiphany. And so I kept trying more iterations and more versions. And it's the name of the book. It's like, it's not every detail is figured out before you even start. And I had to have a grand vision to get it going. It was like, you got to dream something and then go get, go get that dream. And then once you get somewhere, you go to the next somewhere. And, and I just never worried about where is this all gonna go in the like in 30 years. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that, right? They start like looking so far in advance that they're just like overwhelmed by, well, what if this and what if that and what if that? And I just didn't do it. I just kept pivoting and adapting and adjusting and learning constantly which led us to so many opportunities. And if I saw something that was successful, I did more of that. And when I fucked up on something, I did less of that. And I was like, okay, what did I do wrong there? How do we change that? And that like willingness to fail and to lean into every situation kind of helped make this windy path to a place where I realized, okay, this apron is more than just a garment in a professional kitchen. There's home cooks that want it. There's people, brands that want to work with us. Like, let's go after those opportunities. So it's interesting in the, in the book, first of all, congratulations on, on it in many ways. It's so dream first details later. You have got, you've got this, you know, the, the graphic design, the look, the feel of it, it is, it's really nice. I mean, it's got this sort of matte, 
color scheme going on. It's got all these rainbow colors. It feels like it's out of another era slightly. It sort of has a vibe of a old textbook that you might have had from the sort of, I don't know whether it's the 60s or the 70s or that kind of zone, but you know, it, it, I, I, when I, as soon as I picked it up, I'm like, oh, when I remember when I was a kid and I was at school, I might've had a math book that was like a big version of this. That yeah, I would have opened up and looked at it and, you know, and it's, there was, you, know, you talk about your ups and your downs. What are, what were some of the, the real, I guess the, the difficulties that you had to overcome um, both, I guess, being a woman in business and in the, and in, and, and I, we've had a lot of chefs on this, on the Shake and the Stir show. Yeah. And a lot of female chefs have sort of said to us just how difficult it was to sort of succeed in yeah. this world, in a very sort of male dominated world. Was that the same thing working, you know, trying to create a business within that world as well? Yeah. I think I credit my mother for this, but I always focused on what I had and not what I didn't have. And so I was quite resourceful. And because I was a woman and not a man, and I realized like men in kitchens were very competitive. They were serious. They were aggressive. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not like that. What am I then? And I was like, okay, well, I can talk to people very comfortably. I am excited as hell about what I'm doing. I have something that I'm going to deliver to them, which is like make them look and feel better. I can collaborate and like really listen, like lean into them. And so when I kind of realized that those were strengths that I had, and maybe I wasn't like men, but I was like Ellen, I just leaned into it. And it was really cool because I actually stood out in kitchens. I wasn't trying to be like everybody else. I wasn't trying to be like the other crayons in the Crayola box, if you will. I was just like myself. And it made people notice me in a way that I wasn't afraid of not being like them. I was just like, yeah, I'm working on this thing and it's really exciting. And I'd love to show you what I'm up to. And they'd be like, well, sure, come by the restaurant. And then I would, I would be real. There's a line in the book, I call it humble enthusiasm and humble enthusiasm is like, you're excited to share, but you're excited to learn at the same time. And so I'd come to somebody and I'd say, here's what I'm working on. What do you think? I would love to hear your opinion on this. And like, how can you, you know, what are your thoughts on how we can make this better? And so everybody was collaborating with me. So they felt invested in it. And it made them kind of like take down this armor, this chef armor that everybody has. And then they were just like giddy little kids that were like, holy shit, someone's going to make me something that's going to make me look better and feel better in the kitchen. And I get to design it and put my opinions all over it and they don't care. Amazing. And so I had these like very serious, like the Jonathan Benno is in the book. He was the, he was the chef at Thomas Keller's French Laundry and Per Se in New York for like a long time. Like this man gives no fucks. And he was so committed to Headley and Bennett's success because of these conversations I had with him that that really made it very successful for me to just like be myself and not try to be like everyone else. And, and that is, that's, I explained that a lot in the books, just like you got to lean into your own special sauce and your special magic, because like, that's what the world needs more of. Not you trying to be like a serious stern chef, like everybody else's. No, no, you, you have, I mean, there's all kinds of great tidbits in the book actually. And one of the things I like, you have this sort of your, your master to do list and you talk about things like 
little scary things that you have to get over and um, be your own cheerleader and, you know, various things like this, these sort of tidbits to, to help people get, what do you mean by, what are one of these little scary things that you're talking about that you have to deal with on your list? Yeah. So it's, it's like showing up to do something that's definitely out of your comfort zone, right? Like opportunities don't just land on your doorstep. You have to show the hell up and like do something that's a little uncomfortable. And when you do these little scary things and then you land it, you actually have a better chance of landing something bigger and scarier the next time you show up and do it. Right. So it could be, it could be as basic as, you know, I don't know, getting up early to go to a class that you have never done and you suck at spinning and you show up to the cycling class anyway and you do it and you get out of there and you're like I did that or signing up for a marathon and you've never run a marathon it doesn't matter because you get in and then you start practicing and you have a goal and somewhere to run to and then you do the marathon and you make it and you're like oh my god I'm stronger than I thought I was and so these like little scary things push you forward and no one's around to tell you like Nigel, you should really work on your cooking skills, right? You have to be your own cheerleader. And so you got to decide you're going to go to the grocery store and buy the ingredients and get the cookbook and do the work and no one's going to do it for you. So it's just like a reminder to people that if you want to succeed, stop waiting around for anybody to come and like do it for you. Just fucking do it yourself and start trying. It's familiar. It's going to be familiar territory to him because... I saw on his Instagram today or yesterday. I don't really look at Instagram very much. When I do, I'm always surprised because he's always got a new story up. But you should check it out. He's become an ambassador for, for an underpant, women's underpants company. Or lingerie, Tom. Which, which when you say just show up to something and fuck it. And you know what? Just do get out of your comfort zone. I was looking at him and I thought, now there is a guy who is out of his comfort zone. I mean, how can you talk fluidly about comfort, the comfort of a different, fit, the right fitting panties? I mean- you know, Tom, it was when I was last with you playing pool and you, you came out in stilettos and a, and a G-string and I realized if you could do it, I could do it. And I thought well, I'd get in away with that. You're up, you're oh on it. Oh my gosh, I see it in third yeah. love. Hey, those are really good bras. I use third love. I like oh, yeah. third love. Hello, you and I have got a lot in common. Tom uses them and I talk about them. That's all I can say. I'm uh, commenting to increase your engagement. Please you do share it across all your platforms and everything. Is this how it works, people? It's this is how it works. The hustle is real. The hustle is real. Move those bras, Nigel. Move those bras. I do like to move a bra. Do you mean every time I send a link to someone with a kind of hysterical comment about look what Nigel's doing, it's actually helping you? Yes, it's, it's contributing to his engagement. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Whether I stop doing that or not. Please share it with everybody, Tom. Oh, all, all your fans. Um, have you ever done a bartender's apron? We have, actually. Like, oh, really yeah. good ones. Act the one you're wearing... That one is like a very premium, fancy Headley and Bennett. That's I, know. I only get the best. Yeah, you only got the best. I, I was like, okay, fancy pants. You got the leather straps. It's wax canvas, which is basically like a soy dipped canvas. Soy so dip. if you pour anything on it, it just rolls right off. So that's actually the perfect, uh, that's the perfect one for bartenders. Well, we, I, I would like to know what we were going to do if we we're going to do a shaken and stirred um, apron. 
Like this I is. Mean, I think we might need to do that. Move aside, third love. We're coming. We're coming over. That's right. I mean, who needs underwear and lingerie if you have an apron on? I mean, quite frankly, nothing is better than just an apron and nothing else. Well, the thing is, so there might be something in that because there was a time I was thinking earlier when you were saying about you know aprons and making a fashion and then, and then doing these kind of collaborations. I mean, it hasn't literally. I was thinking about Nigel's underpants situation, which he also used to model. I just remembered when we were about eighteen. Anyway, they were men's underpants all the time. Right. Underpants, his all in fact, underpants all the time. My mother's nickname for him was Underpants for a while because because we were we were at Heathrow Airport one day going going on holiday and she how was, is Mrs. Robinson as, <laughs> as an eighteen year old I did or seventeen year old I needed more underpants and socks so we went to this, this shop and there in front of us were these reams of pitch, basically images of Nigel's very tight tidy whities and my mother was shrieking I mean that's finally one of the funniest things ever anyway he's been nicknamed Underpants ever since but sorry going back to what I was saying. So I was thinking it wasn't, you know, post, post, post war, post 40, post middle of the last century. I mean, underpants, literally, and tights weren't a fashion accessory. They were things that were, they were everyday things. And until, till till they invented uh, nylon, I guess, um, you know, the, the, the pants and tights and socks weren't terribly fashionable. There he is. Oh my God. Oh my God. Wait, is that, are they both you? Both me. Because one of me is not enough. I know. Wow. I think wow. like Nigel. Final tap where they put the socks down, the underpants, which is hysterical as well. Back oh, in my the day. God, Nigel. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Excuse me. If people could only see our faces right now, the exclamation marks on our eyeballs are extreme. Everyone out there in, in, in pod, podcast world, go to my yeah. Instagram, at Nigel Barker. In fact, I might just share this on at Shaken and Stirred. I think you Talk should. Ellen might share it too. She's probably going to take my story I'm and share it. I'm going to it take it and I'm going to repost just to increase engagement for you, Nigel. Thank Show you. those abs to the universe. We need to cover it with an apron, though, is what I think. We need to and do hold the book at the same time, just to like to be a little more proof. Watch it. He's hijacking your podcast cover here. Cover your chest with the book. <laughs> there we go. We're doing ad campaigns here, everybody. Tommy, where were you on that story? I don't know. You look. Stop hijacking her. Stop hijacking her podcast. No, what I said was um um. The pants and pants and socks didn't used to be fashionable, rather like aprons didn't. They have their time, right? That's the, that's what I was saying, and I was just tying tying it in with what you were doing at the moment. Well, you were doing right, even coffee. Think about coffee back yeah. in the day. Coffee was just a commodity. You bought it in a styrofoam cup. And nobody cared where it came from, and it was basically hot water with like some flavorless garbage. And now you have all these crazy companies all over the place that are a brand because they elevated it. It's the same concept, it really is. Mm. Although I've seen aprons done in certain ways before, like Fredericks of Hollywood, where they, oh. don't, they don't look like aprons I've ever used yeah, or seen. No, those, those are a different category of aprons, Mr. Nigel. Why do all roads lead back to lingerie in your camp? <laughs> <laughs> wow, she's got my number, hasn't she? Wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, people. Um, my right along. Um, you are Mexican English. Let's talk to us about your heritage. I mean, it is quite interesting. It's a kind of what you know. Growing up in England, there were no Mexican restaurants. None. I know. It was the strangest thing in the, in the seventies and eighties. There was no. nowhere where you could go and get Mexican food. 
I, I remember going to the US for the first time and there being Mexican restaurants. I'd never had Mexican food before. So how did your folks meet? What was what's their story a little bit? Well, they were both in LA and my mom had moved from Mexico. She was a nurse and because she studied her full degree in Mexico, she actually had to redo the entire university study to become a nurse in the United States all over again. So she's basically a doctor, you know, she did like four years all over again. Uh, and while she was on that journey, she met my dad, who's a pilot for American. So like really, you know, straight down the line, America, like going out there and making your dreams happen type of a situation. And um, they met and they got together. And my, my dad is like six foot two, white as can be, blue eyes, very freckly. And my mom is like five one, tiny little Mexican mama, feisty as can be. And the two of them got together and they uh, made Ellen Marie Bennett over here. <laughs> And I, and I see a lot, a lot of both, you know, just from the description <laughs> alone in, in you. It's, it's quite funny. It's quite the most extreme. I love that. What a great story. So yeah. it, clearly you probably identified then, I would imagine, with Mexico more than the UK. Well, what was so funny, and I feel like you'll both appreciate this, is I grew up going to my grandfather's house here in, in L.A., and we would have tea at four and eat Walker's cookies. And he had two giant Great Danes that were like three times my size. And he worked at Lockheed Martin building whatever, like giant rockets and stuff. And um, it, he like read the uh, Britannic Encyclopedia on the weekends. Like it was a really funny scene. And then you had my grandmother, Elsa, who like made apple pie from scratch and whatever. And on the flip side, my Mexican family was like, I was running around the streets of Mexico barefoot playing soccer and like running to the street corner to get tortillas for lunch and like go to your friend's house, but she doesn't have a floor in her house, but it doesn't matter because they're the loveliest and they're in the neighborhood and who cares? And it was such a radical difference in perspective but I loved how alive people were in Mexico and everything was so proper and like British on the other side. And I loved it too, right? We like watched Amadeus when I was like five years old. I mean, it was really ridiculous, <laughs> but that was one side and I got the other at the same time. So I got to kind of take the best of both worlds and make my own world. There's a, they are sort of opposites, you know, in, in many ways, yeah. but it's, it's that opposites attract kind of thing too. I mean, I think that, if there's one thing that the British have been very good at is as well as just when they go around the world in general, like, is they like finding and living and moving to areas where it, it's, it is the opposite. And, and you know, no matter where I've gone in the world, I've come across sort of British communities. And obviously there's a big one in the Los Angeles area. Certainly when you go to Santa Monica, Venice, that part of, of, of Los Angeles, it's like almost like little England. Um, yeah, totally. they, and yet they, they love all of that sort of the, also the Mexican community and what have you. And we have friends of ours who live now in Mexico and, you know, the English find themselves everywhere. They're a bit like sort of nomads in many ways and yeah. they go with all their old traditions and everything, but love to be a part of and immersed in all these old cultures like Mexican cultures and what have you. Yeah. And I was, you know, obviously I was very different than them in the sense that I was like, 
this wild little kid with full of opinions who spoke Spanish and English and I would ride the Great Danes all over the house and you know I was a disaster compared to their structured world but they loved me for it and I just got to learn a ton about the benefits of my English side which was very like proper and dignified and put processes into things but at the same time, I got the art side from my Mexican culture. And so I think about Headley and Bennett and also my approach to life is just this combination of art and science. And you can't have one without the other. You kind of really do need both because that's where you get the like the dream first and then the details, right? It's like the details are the English side. The dreaming is the, is the Mexican side. And I just, I love it. I, I'm very lucky and I feel really fortunate to have had both sides because it kind of helped me like see what mattered. Is England, ask, is, is England the only, I mean, are we the only country that has a, that has a, has a saying um, hanging onto the apron strings? I mean, that's an English saying, isn't it? Oh yeah, you're right. That yeah. is an English saying. Translate um, Mexican or Spanish or does it? No, I mean, I don't no, know. It's exclusively <laughs> English. There we go. Well, maybe that's another contributing factor. It's very, yeah. I, I consider the aprons to be very, well, English. very English, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't picture. I mean, in the name Headley and Bennett, you can't get more British yeah. than that. I mean, it's pretty. People used to think that the company was like a bunch of old white guys. I was like, no, it's me. <laughs> like a regal, some regal law firm. I'm like, no, it's me, myself, and I, and my grandfather, who was not around, but in his honor. So you need to get a little royal crest now. You need to. You need to <laughs> I know, right? With, with one of those princes and then well actually you've got one out there and actually no he's not allowed to do that though because he's lost all that but that you should try and get one you should send one over to the royal house over here and see if you can get yourself a little you know oh. one of those little badges on it it'd be hysterical oh my god well my little badge i love nigel that you're wearing a lacoste shirt because that was actually the inspiration for the ampersand the yeah there it is i wanted a little logo that was symbolic without being obnoxious you know something that you see and you're willing to wear but it's not overbearing and it's not like abercrombie and fitch across your chest it's just classy and timeless so well, i know. love i love that that part i think really came from the english side just like it headley and bennett is about being timeless and elegant and you don't you can't quite your, put your finger on like when it started it's just been around for a long time right like herman no shame because i was thinking of doing a shaken and stirred apron with shaken and stirred written all over it just like shaken and don't stirred. do it nigel don't do it keep it classy san diego <laughs> oh well listen we're at this part of the show we have a thing called last orders we love to jump in yeah. it's a kind of rapid fire question kind of moment um super easy I think you're up for it. You, you, you're, I think you're more up for it than you. You're so kind of on, partly because you haven't been drinking, which is part of the problem. We need to address this. Well, also, by the way, what time is it over there? Uh, it's always five o'clock here. Well, he, he's in New York, and over here it's uh, five, 11. Five o'clock. Oh, okay, well, there you go. All right. And I'm 11 p.m., quarter to 11. Oh, my okay, all right, give it to me. All right. Hangover cure. As she bites into a lemon, everybody. What are you eating? What is that? Is that, that, is that your grapefruit? It's the rest of my grapefruit. Look, at, I, I ask her a question, she just bites into a isn't grapefruit. It, sorry, you need to say pomeli, pim, pomelito. It's a pomelo, isn't it? Mm, pomelo is another name for it, but no, I called it um, toronjita. A toronjita, is that another name for grapefruit? Yeah. Okay. Exactly, little grapefruit. Ita right. is little. Yeah, I have pomelo. Yeah. 
Pomelito would be little pomelo. Okay. Um, cure for cure for hangover. Hangover. Oh God, sleeping. That's it. What you do? <laughs> oh, boring. Or micheladas are really good for a hangover. You know what a michelada is? It's like a like a Corona, and then they put tomato juice in it, and then you line the rim with tahini, and then you put like all. It's a little bit like a Mexican Bloody Mary, basically. Bloody, there you go. Tom's great uncle invented the Bloody Mary. Um, really? For real. Yep. You should have started with that. Not the Mexican one. <laughs> not the Mexican one. My uncle started the Mexican one. Actually, sounds not like a hangover cure, but rather like you wish you never drunk at all because if this is what you now have to drink, oh shit. Oh. Um, a Corona with tahini or whatever wrapped across it with the tomato juice in the beer. It's like someone spilt your drink and then you drank it anyway. Um, midnight snack. What is your go-to midnight snack? Oh, it depends what kind of a day I've had. But if it's been a doozy, probably Annie's mac and cheese, which is just like a little kid version of macaroni and cheese with really good white cheddar. Oh, so good. Wow. And I like I like the noodles that have shapes so that like oh, they absorb more of the cheesiness. Really just so funny. When I first saw you, you kind of reminded me of Dora the Explorer. And and now I'm hearing you like those sort of animal shapes in a in a pasta sauce. The whole thing is like it's becoming real. Oh my god, Dora the Explorer. I kind of do look like Dora with this. Kind of right now with I don't know if I should be offended by that or if I should be honored. No, come on. Dora the Explorer is the best. I loved her. My daughter adored her, but she was like looked so kind of sweet and like was like always going to get her and so probably know Annie's mac and cheese then. If you do. Okay, good. Just checking. It's fantastic. Don't tell me you haven't had a bite of it. You know it's good. I don't eat it. No. No, never. You need to have a bite of it next no, time. No, okay, in, give me the in, next question. In 21 years of living here, I have bought it for my children. My kids eat it and, and they eat it even when they're not hungover, which is a good thing because they're only 15 and 12. Um, but I, I can see it being hangover food, but I just don't like mac and cheese. It's the funniest thing. My entire life, I've never liked mac and cheese. Wow, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's just weird. No, I don't know what it is. Something about... I don't know the two together just wrong anyway it's not about me what about fish and chips what's your what's your hangover food well oh bloody mary is pretty it's right up there i'm hair of the dog kind of person i do think that actually that is the cure for pr pretty much all hangers but it's also a couple of things so for me personally it's having a i like to drink like probably about a liter of water right before i go to bed because oh, it's yeah. that, that is that hydration crucial. Right before, doesn't matter how drunk, whatever you, you drink that water, yeah. and then and because then, what happens at the night, it's basically you're getting more and more dehydrated, your brain yeah. is shrinking, yeah, in yeah, 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 yeah. And you I wake up, and you're like, ah! so drink yeah. that water, so it's just in your system, yeah. And then, yeah. But I'm also, I've funnily enough, almond pancakes with banana, cinnamon, wow. a proper pancake mix. Oh, you, you got you need food in the morning when you've got a hangover. So anyway, there you go. Um, what gets your goat and what floats your boat? I, I think I have a really good, good egg radar, meaning I can find people that are awesome humans out in the world. I think the thing that bothers me is when people become really successful and then they become not nice. That really gets my goat. It's like, 
the more successful you are, the nicer you better be because you better appreciate the fact that you made it somewhere and say, be nice to the people around you. So that really like gets my goat going in the wrong direction. And then what really floats my boat? I love simple stuff. Like I love coming home. With Don't say the- Annie's mac and cheese again. Please. No, no, I was going to say, I love coming home with like a box of pizza, like, you know, cold. it doesn't even matter. Not Annie's. And just like hanging out with my husband and the pig after a crazy ass week. Like last week, my book launched across, you know, the world. And we were on the Ellen show and we did all this crazy shit. And all I wanted to do was just get home and hang out with my husband and the pig on the couch and eat like cold pizza. And it was just the best, you know, just to get to appreciate the special stuff with simple moments is really nice. That's my, that's what floats my boat. First of all, I mean, your husband seems like an extraordinary man considering everything that's going on around him, but he has to share the couch with the pig. Yeah. The pig is like three quarters of the couch. It's really sad. We really just jam ourselves onto the edge. (laughs) And does the pig have a name? Or is he just called the pig? Yeah, no, he's very regal too. His name is Oliver. Oliver? Oliver, you might have to be our next guest on the Shaken and Stir. I know, I know. I'm like, where is he? I was going to show you guys him. He's very... I've actually seen him. Now I realize what I was looking at on your Instagram. I wondered why this pig showed up every once in a while. I I wasn't quite sure. I kind of just glossed over it without really realizing and clicking on it. But I've seen... The big blob. Brown, dark pig. Amazing. Um, In the movie of your life, who would play you? Oh, wow. I really like Anne Hathaway, uh, probably from, she already did the movie, The Intern, and that movie felt very sort of similar to my journey a little bit. I don't know, the Anne Hathaway, I think she's cool. Uh, well, I never would have pegged you as an Anne Hathaway. Really? Why? I don't know, because I see a lot of other actresses out there. Zoe Deschanel? I'm gonna, you know what? I never do this. Tom can attest to this, but I, you know, just talking to you right now, I would like Juliet Binoche to play you. Oh, wait a second. What do you think, Tom? Do you approve or you disapprove? I think that I've never pegged anyone as Dora the Explorer as well, but um, he's gone from Dora the Explorer to Juliet Binoche. I'm going for it today. <laughs> I, I think Juliet Binoche sounds 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 like a sounds like a sort of an attractive property. Yeah, I think. Hey, uh, Tom, this is this is Oliver. Do you see him? <laughs> yeah. <okay. laughs> yep. He's wow. reading a book with my husband on the floor. You know, casual. <laughs> this is one of those situations, people. When someone sells you a, a pet, telling you it's only going to grow for. What like half a foot? Oh, buy this pygmy pig, and the next minute you've got a two hundred pound behemoth. <laughs> Literally, yes, exactly. God, mini pigs—they're a myth. They're not reality. They're not reality. There's no such thing as a mini pig. It has all to do with how much you fed it. Read the Doctor Zeus book; it's right there. Um, final question: okay. Shaken or stirred? Shaken. Well, Ellen Marie Bennett, 
you have shaken us today on the shaken and stirred show thank you so much for having us dream first details later get the book it's amazing it's beautiful if you you know what my wife stole it immediately and has been reading it religiously and screaming things about it to me um, whilst in the bed uh, and so i have now have read it fully too it's a great book it's full of great little tidbits it actually echoed a lot of my own life as well so um thank you for that um good luck with everything and i'm not joking about that shaken and stirred apron by the way we need one let's do it let's do it seriously and for everyone out there in the universe follow us on instagram too at ellen marie bennett so you can see oliver the big fatty and headley and bennett and uh you can get signed copies of the book on our website headleyandbennett.com so go get it we love it. Take care. Thank you so much. You guys. Good luck nice. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.